from the book of John, chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. This is probably a familiar passage to most of you. And so we will once again look at this narrative of the feeding of the 5,000 from the book of John, chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. Would you please stand together for the reading of God's word? Hear now the word of God. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost." So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, we know that in you are all the stores of riches that we need. You are the Lord, the only wise God. Would you share your wisdom with us? We ask you because there is no one greater. There is no one wiser. Would you send your spirit to give us hearts that love your word and souls to treasure what you have to say to us about yourself? We ask you this out of our need. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. I think there is a great deal of defensiveness to us as Christians when we read about the miracles in Scripture. Um, And what I mean by that is that we live in a time that is very antagonistic to the idea of miracles. And we as a society and in Western culture at large have a certain skepticism about miracles baked into us. Back in the 1700s, there was a skeptical writer named David Hume. Uh, You have to read him if you want to get a philosophy degree. And... David Hume was certainly one of those people who was skeptical of the idea of miracles. Hume was completely convinced that the laws of nature can never be changed, that the laws of nature can never be violated, 
And the reason Hume believed this was as a matter of faith. Hume had no evidence that it was not possible for the laws of nature to be violated. The reason he held this was because he himself had personally never experienced a miracle. And since he himself had never experienced a miracle, and since he himself had never seen the laws of nature violated, he held it as a principle that that was the case. And largely Hume's view of miracles has seeped out into the intellectual elites. It's seeped out into our scientific methodologies. It has seeped out into how we generally look at the world as a society. And it's held, that view has held sway since the 1700s when he introduced it. And what that means is that even when we as Christians are convinced completely that miracles are <coughs> real, when we're convinced that miracles actually took place, that they are real historical events, even when we're convinced, we still tend to mostly focus on the existence of the miracle and the reality of the miracle. In other words, we're on the defensive, even when we really have no reason to be. Our problem is, we can be tempted not to get much deeper than the miracle itself because we're so caught up and we're so concerned with proving that the miracle happened that I think oftentimes we don't go deeper and ask the question, why this miracle? Why this timing? Why did this happen? And so we're just reacting enough to the world around us that we are just delighted in the miracle. And we're just delighted to be able to see and think about Christ doing these things. But this morning, as we look at this familiar narrative, we're familiar with the narrative of the feeding of the 5,000. And the number was certainly much larger than 5,000 because this is just the number of the men. So you're not counting the women who are with the men, and they're also not counting the children who are with them as well. So we're talking about a number that is much more in excess than just 5,000 people. So let's look at the text today, and let's not be on the defensive. (laughs) Instead of reading it and arguing, oh, this certainly happened, I instead want to ask the question that's a little deeper, which is the question of, what is God intending to say to us about his son in a miracle like this? What is he showing us about himself? What is God like? What is he teaching us here? See, we need to get to the place where we don't see the miracles as an end in themselves. Um, The miracles don't just happen as a reflex, you know, simply as uh, someone. It's not as if someone was just hungry. Well, we all need to eat. And so let's see a miracle here. Everything about Jesus's life was planned and superintended and prophesied from the place that he would be born to the family that he would come from to the meals that he would eat to the meals he would not eat and so on. Everything about his life was planned. And that includes this miracle today. And so let's dispense with the idea that this miracle was just a miracle for the sake of the miraculous and instead see what he is showing us about the sun today. And so what I want to do is explore this miracle, especially in the first point, the feeding. And then I want us to see the second point, the feedback. How did the people actually respond once he performed this miraculous feeding? And then finally, we need to, as the third point, appreciate the facts. 
How does the reality of Jesus clash up against what people think this miracle tells them about Jesus? Because the people, they derive their own meaning from this miracle. And in many ways, they are very wrong and we need to see how. And they're also right in a lot of ways and we need to appreciate that as well. Who is Jesus? That's what this passage is here showing us today. First this morning, we have the feeding. Jesus is being followed by a large crowd. and They have seen Jesus. They have seen his miracles. They have heard of Jesus' miracles. They have heard of his healings. And they are drawn to this man. And so Jesus goes up on the mountain, seemingly to move away from the crowds. And it seems like this works for a season. It describes that he sat down with his disciples. It doesn't say uh, anyone else, just the disciples. But it seems as though the people maybe are exploring the mountain. And as they're in the midst of exploring the mountain, they end up finding Jesus. And in verse 5, it says that Jesus sees the large crowd coming toward him. And he decides to be proactive. He's proactive. Before they even reach him, Jesus looks over at Philip and he asks Philip a question. He says, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, I love John's comment. John makes this comment. He says, he said this to test him. He's testing Philip for he himself knew what he would do. Now, John is is making sure we understand Jesus knows the answer to the question as he's asking the question. Um, It's like a throwaway comment, except for the fact that it teaches us something. He cares what Philip believes he can do. He cares what Philip thinks that he can do. And what Philip believes is going to inform the way that he answers the question. And this tells me something about us. It tells me that what we believe about Jesus and what he can do matters too. Jesus wants Philip to have the kind of faith where he answers him and says, I don't know how this problem gets solved. This is a lot of people. But Jesus, I know you're up for it. What do you believe about Jesus? If, if he tested you like this, how would you answer him? Do you believe that Jesus is able to take the biggest problems that you have and the biggest problems that are thrown at him? Is he able to handle those things or not? How do you believe and how does that inform the way that you would answer this kind of a question? Do you trust Jesus the way that Philip needs to this morning? What kind of an answer does Philip give? He, he does not give a miraculous answer. He gives a very down-to-earth, very practical, very pragmatic answer. He basically says, we could have six months of wages on hand, and it wouldn't be enough to feed this many people, even if there was someone to buy this bread from. He's, he's spelling out the impossibility of taking care of this crowd of people. Notice this. Everything the disciples say here at this moment is designed to make Christ dismiss the crowd. They don't think this is feasible. It's feasible for the disciples to be here with Jesus. But in many ways, what is what is happening here is their time with Jesus is being intruded on. Their time with Jesus is being invaded. And maybe they think they'll get more alone time with Jesus if he sends these people away. But see... These men see the crowd, and what is their response? Their response is they're overwhelmed. 
and, and they're weak. And in their weakness, they just want to retreat. We can't do this. This is beyond our ability. Very reasonable people, really. One of the things I love about the Reformed theological tradition, the, the Reformed tradition is what informs our church, is that we have a long intellectual history. We have a, a real pattern of thoughtfully laboring to understand the scriptures. However, I sometimes fear that we're not always as well known as people who just run to God first. We tend to think first. <laughs> we tend to use our minds first. We tend to plan first. We, we can sometimes uh, be so careful, so thoughtful, even rationalistic, that we can do the same thing the disciples do here, right? We're presented with a problem, and our first instinct isn't to say, well, I don't know what can be done, but I know Jesus is up for it. Oftentimes, I fear that our first instinct is to say, how can we do this? This is beyond us. We'll just have to send the people away. You know, our, our budget doesn't allow that, that sort of thing. And, and all of these things are very responsible on the one hand. It's, it's hard to fault someone who gives an answer like that and say, well, they're being re- irresponsible. But, it, but isn't it true, and you see it with the way Jesus talks to Philip here, isn't it true that Jesus is more interested in our trust of him than in our ability to plan well? If you had to pick, if Jesus had to pick something for us, I think he would rather we trust him than be the best planners that ever existed on the face of the earth. I think it is. If he had to pick, that's what he would choose for us. Jesus would rather we step out while doing the right thing than that we aim at low things and that we find more realistic. Well, the disciples... They want to wave off from these people, send them home, get them away. And yet Jesus moves ahead. He he takes these five loaves of barley. He takes these two fish and he feeds the whole crowd with them. And what he does before he even feeds them, though, is it says he gave thanks. It says that he prayed for the food. It's kind of a side thing, but do you pray for your food? You pray when you eat? I think Jesus is showing us that this is a biblical practice to pray before one eats. Now, now praying, praying for a meal um, is a way for us to basically acknowledge where the food comes from. This food didn't come from me. Sometimes when we'll sit down to pray, and, and I think most families maybe do forget sometimes to pray, especially if the kids start eating first before the adults and we don't sit down at the exact same time. But whenever we do sit down to pray, I usually ask, who gave us this food? I will usually ask my kids, who gave us this food? And uh, you'll get a variety of answers, all of them true to one degree or another. Uh, you did, or uh, mommy did, or, or sissy made it, if Genesis cooks. Uh, you know, somebody helped us with this food. But the correct answer is, God gave this to us. God provided. God made the wheat that grew, that got turned into flour so we could have bread. And you can just go through the entire meal and think about all the ways God has provided. And that's what Jesus does. The text says he gave thanks. The question is, gave thanks to whom? I think we know the answer. He gave thanks to God. Praying before eating is not superstitious. It doesn't suddenly make the food healthy. I always feel a little funny praying over a Big Mac and saying, bless this food to the nourishment of my body. Um, It doesn't make it more healthy, 
But I would like that diet if that diet existed. <laughs> um, just pray over that Big Mac and it turns into chicken by the time it reaches your uh, digestive tract. Um, but before we put that food in our mouths, what are we doing? We're remembering who gave us this food. And we remember that he didn't have to give it to us. And we even remember that there are some that he did not give this food to. And so we pray and so we give thanks. So Jesus hands the loaves and he hands the fish out and he keeps handing, right? He, he's got five loaves. He's got two fish. This is going to disappear very quickly. And, and as he does this, the real miracle occurs. The bread keeps coming. The fish keep going. The crowd keeps eating. And, and John says the people had so much, it says they had as much as they wanted. Jesus fills the crowd. Jesus completely satisfies the crowd. And what we see here is an immediate lesson that this miracle teaches us. And it is the power of God. It's very plain to see. Uh, it's, it's obvious to everybody who's there, everyone who reads this story, what an expression of the power of God. A miracle like this is really baffling. And it's really impressive, especially if you try to picture how it happens. If you try to picture how it works, it gets really difficult, right, to think in detail about how it could appear as he was doing this, right? Did he pick up a fish and there was another one there? Did he put the fish into a basket and there just were more every time somebody looked? Um, Did he break off the bread and it just was still there? Um, As you try to think about it, it's almost like we're making fun of the miracle or doubting that it happened. It's one of those things where the closer you look, the less sense that it feels like it makes. And the reality is this. Something like this is beyond us to understand. That's the point of a miracle. Isn't that really the point of a miracle that you can't picture how it happens? When you see Jesus walking on the water and you think of the physics of how feet remain on the surface of water. Does some of the the water splash over his feet? Is it as though there's a solid surface just under the water? And you try to think through the details of how a miracle could actually happen. And as your head spins you should realize that is the point. The point is we are supposed to be baffled. It's something we can't comprehend. How many times has God come through for his people and it made no earthly sense whatsoever? Right? It, it happens all the time in scripture. It happens all the time in everyday life too. Sometimes we notice it, sometimes we don't. Sometimes the ways that God provides and baffles us are very obvious to us. Um, Aaron and I, early on, when we first got married, we lived in our very first apartment together was in college housing. And it cost $200 a month. And that's not because we lived in ye olden days when they only had black and white TVs. That was because we lived in a really, really crummy, cheap apartment. There was a gap under the door. Bugs just could crawl into our house. Uh, paper-thin walls. Um, It it was just not a great place. And we were super broke. But the great thing about being newlyweds is you're newlyweds, so you don't care if you're super broke. Um, That's why you just get married. You don't wait to have a lot of money on hand. Just just get married. And and one day, we we were so broke, we didn't have food. We were down to, I think, one box of hamburger helper, and I don't think we had enough money to buy the hamburger, you know? Like, that's where we were. 
And we went to our mailbox, and there was an envelope with 100 bucks in it. And it didn't have a return address. Someone had walked up to our mailbox and put that money in there, and we have no idea where it came from, who it was. It didn't make sense. It did not make sense for someone to think to themselves, I'm going to put this in a random mailbox today and give somebody money. And yet they did. And so we ate like kings, and we bought toilet paper. Um, And it made no earthly sense to us at all, right? And I, I bet you can think through times where God has come through for you and it didn't make any sense and you just saw his invisible hand at work and he actually let his invisible hand be a bit visible. This miracle is Jesus doing something we can't figure out. He's doing something we can't comprehend. And that is the point. The point is not for him to do things that you can wrap your head around. The point is for him to do things that you can't wrap your head around. And so so the best we can say this morning is that Jesus amazes his disciples and he amazes the crowd. And we see that actually in our next point. The second point this morning is the feedback. The feedback of the crowd in verse 14. To tell you the truth, the feedback is really intense and, and it's a very unwelcome feedback. It's an unwelcome response. John tells us, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And then John says this. He says that Jesus perceived they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. So that's, you know, you wonder, how would you respond if you saw a genuine bona fide miracle? What would you do? Here's here's one possible answer. You grab that guy and you try to make him your king. These people love him. But they don't love him in the way that you might hope. Um, Now, what do they mean? They say this. This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. When they say this, they immediately get Jesus right. They get Jesus right here. They are talking about a prophecy from the book of Deuteronomy chapter 18. In verse 15, Moses is talking. Actually, uh, Moses is talking and he says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So Moses says, there is a prophet like me that's going to come. You should listen to him. And then three verses later, God is speaking and he says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So in Deuteronomy, God promised there was a prophet like Moses that was going to rise. Now remember, they held Moses in very high esteem. And for the people living in Jesus' time, it was not Joshua. Joshua was the one that came after Moses, and Joshua didn't fit the bill. Because Joshua was important, he was needed, but he wasn't the fulfillment of this promise. Joshua was a great leader, but he was not of the same caliber as Moses. He wasn't greater than Moses. They still expected somebody greater. And in this moment after Jesus' miracle, this massive crowd comes to the conclusion that this man is the one like Moses. Greater than Joshua. Greater than Samuel. Greater than Elijah. Greater than Elisha. This is the one. This is the one they've been waiting for. And by the way, this is a sound argument. They're actually right about his identity as the prophet because in Acts chapter 7, Peter is preaching a sermon 
And in the sermon, he points to this text in Deuteronomy and he says, Jesus is the fulfillment of this exact promise. Okay, so the crowds are right so far. They've got Jesus right. They've got him pegged. They know that he's the prophet. They're correct about this. So then there's a big, a big but. They get him right, but they draw the wrong conclusion from that. So they assume that he should be their king. This is where it goes off the rails. Right? They say, look, it's pretty handy to have a king who can make all the bread and fish you want. Imagine what it would do for the economy. Imagine all the resources you could put in other areas of the economy. If you had a king who could just do this all day long and that's his job and he's just making bread and he's making meat and everybody's got their carbs and their protein, this is going to be amazing. That's what the people are thinking. And so what does Jesus do? He runs. He flees. This is not why he came. See, in this moment... We learn something not only about who Jesus is, but who Jesus is not. He is not a political figure. Jesus says that politics would be a huge distraction from the mission that he came to fulfill. And being a worldly king and being a worldly savior are are mutually exclusive. Jesus cannot be both. He cannot be the savior who suffers and bears the penalty of sin and dies on the cross and a king. He can't have them both. And in fact, there's really no contest. One of these is so much more important than the other. And I know that the people hold him in high esteem. The idea of making him king, this is them really exalting him and lifting him up. But here's the thing. To see Jesus as a king really is to set their eyes far too low. He is much greater than an earthly ruler. They still think too little of him when they think that he should be made, the king, be made king. So that is the feedback. And the feedback is dangerous feedback. It is confusion. And Jesus flees from it. So because of the feedback of the people, Jesus is forced to respond. And when he responds, we learn one final thing about Jesus, and that is the facts. We learn the real truth here. Who is he? On the one hand, we see that he's not a political ruler, right? He didn't come for that. That's not his priority. That's not his purpose. And every time in the text, not just in uh, the Gospel of John, but in the other Gospels as well, every time the people even hint at making him the king, he runs for the hills. This is not why he came. If we are ever tempted to put our hope in political rulers Passages like this should give us pause. If politics and rulers really were the most important thing for us, Jesus would have come in that way. Jesus would have done that for us. Jesus would have done whatever it is that we need most. He would have. That's how much he loves us. But he didn't because his mission was greater than that. Jesus knows what we need most, and he's giving it to us, even in a passage like this, where he's running from the people who want to make him king. So that's who Jesus isn't, but who is he? We learn from this miracle that he's God himself. Who else could multiply what nature had given like this? Who but God could do this extraordinary miracle? 
Even Moses pales in comparison. So does every other prophet. Uh, There's a similar miracle to this in 2 Kings chapter 4. But it's not a very impressive miracle. No offense to Elisha. But in 2 Kings chapter 4, Elisha feeds 100 people with 20 loaves. You can picture how that would work. Uh, Five people to a loaf, right? Five people to a loaf. And then you fed 100 with 20 loaves. That works. Jesus feeds 5,000 men and women and children and counting, and he does it with five loaves and two fish, which doesn't make sense. So Jesus is greater than Elisha. Elisha was a great prophet. Jesus is greater. We see that Jesus is greater than Moses here. Moses fed Israel with bread, manna, in Exodus chapter 16. But even Moses didn't personally do it. It was God who did it, and he caused it to fall on the ground during the night. Jesus does the feeding personally. He's better than Moses. See, every time we see Jesus insisting that he came to deal with sin, to deliver Israel from spiritual Egypt, to rescue men and women and boys and girls from a power greater than Pharaoh, we should be in awe. That's why Jesus came. Do you see this? The most important thing to Jesus is your soul. Jesus would rather rescue your soul from sin than sit on a kingly throne. He loves you that much. Are your priorities his priorities? Is your soul more important to you than worldly success and money and health and and family? Would you give it all up for one day in his presence? See, Jesus is showing us today that that you should make his priorities your priorities. And, And then if you know that you're not, You've got to cry out to him. You've got to ask him for heart change because that's what it requires. To have your loves reoriented so that you love what's important and hate what isn't. Ask him to change your soul so that you love and want what he loves and wants for you. I said at the beginning that miracles are never just miracles in the Bible. They are always ways For God to instruct and teach his people what he is like. That's what he's doing when he does miracles in the Bible. And so with that in mind, what does this miracle teach us about God? For starters, it teaches us about God's compassion. Jesus Jesus thought about these people's needs before they had even reached him. Think about that. He thought about them before their need had even shown itself yet. And Calvin makes this comment. He says, Christ takes care of those who neglect themselves in order to follow him. Christ takes care of those who neglect themselves in order to follow him. Christ does not wait until they are starving and crying out. He provides food before they even ask for it. I love that. That is such a... That is such a great thing. Do you see this here? The provision of Jesus is being prepared before they even ask. I wonder if there isn't a need for some of us to be reminded of that, right? If you are anxious about your needs, if you're anxious about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you will wear, where you will sleep, whether something will make you sick, that's big right now. Isn't there a comfort that Jesus is taking care of them even before the problems arrive? He takes care 
before they even ask. What is Jesus doing for you right now that you don't even know you need yet? There is rest from anxiety from us here, for us here if we'll accept it. Now maybe we can think of some counterexamples. Maybe we're in a cynical mood and we say, look, there are some godly people who do go hungry. Uh, right now, probably there is a Chinese pastor sitting in a prison cell and he is going to be there for a couple of years and he is quite hungry. There are counterexamples to this preacher. Why would you even talk about God taking care of our provisions when there are counterexamples? And Calvin has an answer to that too. He says, he says, when help is not immediately forthcoming, it happens for the best of reasons, even though that reason may be hidden from us. In other words, even, even our suffering and loss is an expression of God's provision. Even in those things, he is taking care of us, but they're happening for a reason. What is his reason? He may be developing you spiritually. He may be teaching you patience. You may have made the mistake of praying for patience at some point in the recent past. <laughs> it's, not a patient, it's not a mistake. <laughs> but sometimes you feel like it's a mistake when you ask for patience. It's always dangerous to pray for patience. This miracle teaches us something about Christ's efficiency as well. Notice this. There are 12 baskets left over. I pointed this out at the beginning. Nothing about Jesus's life is an accident. Nothing about Jesus's miracles is an accident. It is not an accident that there are 12 baskets of bread left over. You think that's an accident? Jesus actually is very intentional here. He says, gather up all of the leftover bread and make sure you don't waste any of it. That's not because he wanted to save the bread for later. It's because he wanted them to see how much was left. Now, why is it important that there are 12 baskets left over? Consider this. God rescued the people from Egypt. Even in this miracle, there is an exodus pattern. He wants us to think about God's deliverance of Israel from from Egypt. Moses was used by God to feed the people and bring manna. In that instance, there were 12 tribes traveling in the wilderness, and they were being fed. 12 children of Israel whose families were provided for in the Exodus. And when the manna came down, they were only allowed to gather up enough for each day. And so what happens? Each of the 12 tribes goes out for that day, and they fill their containers up, enough bread for their family to eat for that day. What has Jesus done here? but shown in a stark way that he brings everything that Israel needs. All 12 tribes. He has all that they need. What Jesus gives is sufficient, and then some. He's he's showing us something. He's showing us something of his sufficiency. Jesus is all we need. If, If you're united to him by faith, there is truly nothing that you can do to make yourself more acceptable in God's sight. If you have Christ, you have it all. You have it all. There may be other things in this world that you want, but when you have Jesus, you have everything that you actually, truly need. Everything else in life becomes extra. Everything else in life becomes extra. Jesus ends up giving us perspective on all the concerns that we have, whether those are bodily concerns, physical concerns, political concerns, family concerns, material concerns, All of them are secondary to the fact that we know the most important thing in our life is taken care of and everything else is just gravy. Everything else is just extra. This miracle also teaches us that Christ is the God of the Passover. 
I mentioned that there's nothing accidental about anything in Jesus' life. That includes the timing of this miracle. This miracle happens during the Passover. So the Passover was a meal, not unlike the one Jesus prepares. Of course, it was more than a meal. The, the Passover was a remembrance of the Exodus where God rescued his people from Egypt. The Exodus shapes and colors everything that we see here this morning. Think of the location. Where are they? They're in the wilderness. Luke tells us that this is a desolate place. And so this feeding took place during the Passover, which was meant to remember the Exodus. And so this feeding took place to point us to the Savior who could rescue us from sin and bondage. Jesus is the Savior of the Exodus. Consider that these 5,000 strong came to Jesus instead of to Jerusalem to observe the Passover. They've come to the right Passover. This is the true Passover. This is the true Savior. This is the true Lamb of God. Jesus makes it quite clear. There is bread in this Passover meal that if you eat it, you'll be hungry again. There is wine in this Passover meal that will give you momentary but not lasting joy. There is remembrance of God's deliverance that is meaningful but incomplete if you think the Passover is an end in itself. And yet what does Jesus say later in John chapter 6? He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me will never thirst. The point of the Passover is to point to the perfect rescue. The point of the Passover is to reveal to us a bread that will fill us forever. The point of the Passover is the perfect wine that never runs out and never leaves us thirsty. See, here's the real message, and it's so basic that even a child can understand it. Believe in Jesus, and you have the bread. Believe in Jesus, and you'll drink that wine. Trust in Jesus, and you will never be hungry for the thing you need most again. Let's pray. Our God, we know that you have shown us your son today. You've revealed him to us as your Passover lamb, as the bread of life, as the one who has life in himself. But it's one thing for us to hear, to see, to understand. And it's another thing for us to love your son. So send your spirit this morning into the hearts of your people so that we do love your truths and so that we do rejoice to truly know him. Give us eyes to see and hear and love Christ. And so we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond to the bread that Jesus offers by standing together and singing number 145, Break Thou the Bread of Life, number 146.